Mike Mahari of the Tenth Amendment Centre recently had me on It's Your Dime, the Chef Gold Show. I'm including it as episode 127 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Check out the awesome intro music. Welcome to It's Your Dime, a straight talk interview series presented by Chef Gold. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. In this episode, I'll be talking with author Anthony Samaroff about the universal basic income. Anthony is the host of the Scottish Liberty Podcast and is the author of Universal Basic Income For and Against. In this interview, Anthony and I talk about what UBI actually is and how it would work, why it's being proposed, the economic ramifications, the possible unintended consequences, and we lay out a case against it. Anthony Samaroff, thank you so much for being on the show today. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for having me, Michael. A real privilege. Oh, the privilege is all mine, believe me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off uh, the way I've started off all of these interviews so far. It's a little segment that I like to call Who Are You and Why Are You on My Show? All right. Which is basically just uh, your opportunity to uh, tell a bit about yourself and your background. Okay, great. Should I just take it away? Take it away. Hi, I'm Anthony Samroff. I'm the host of the Scottish Liberty podcast and the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. I guess um, freedom is my passion. And there's two sides to that. One is kind of political freedom, which is embodied in the Scottish Liberty podcast. And I'm a libertarian advocacy. And then kind of the acknowledgement that a lot of the things that actually get in the way of our reaching our fullest potential in this world are internal. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Be Yourself and Love It podcast is all about. It's a personal development podcast and it it covers a wide range of topics from financial freedom, communication and relationships, all facets of the personal life which we can optimize. So those are the two strings to my bow. Very, very cool. So you wrote a book not too long ago called Universal Basic Income for and Against, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. I think it's going to be a particular interest to uh, my viewers uh, who are interested in economics and financial kinds of things. Uh, Fantastic book. Highly recommend it. Thank you. What I would like you to do first off is we're hearing a lot about UBI right now, um, especially as we're getting kind of into campaign season. Uh, Andrew Yang, in particular, has been a big advocate. He's a Democratic uh, Party candidate for president. Uh, So this is going to be something that's definitely going to be in the news. We're hearing more and more about it. And and even in some libertarian and and conservative circles, we're starting to uh, hear a lot of uh, people that are advocating for this UBI, universal basic income. So can you kind of give an overview of just what is UBI? What are they trying to do? What What's the nuts and bolts of this? Interestingly, I was set to debate Andrew Yang in September in New York, but he's got a lot more famous since that was arranged. <laughs> and he pulled out the debate. We weren't able to find a replacement, but oh, we'll no. be debating someone um, in January. So that's that's unfortunate. However, it's interesting that it's in the news. Hopefully it will translate to some uh, spreading of the book, which was written, I think, 
a great introduction to libertarian ideas. It was written to um, universal basic income advocates, I guess, or people who are open-minded to it, to introduce them to a whole bunch of libertarian policies um, aimed at helping the poor. But yeah, the universal basic income, it's an idea that's been knocking around for quite a while, but it's just come to prominence recently. And the idea is that everyone would be entitled to a certain sum of money from the government each month, not a huge sum of money, but enough to ensure that everyone would have food on the table and uh, possibly be able to pay their rent and bills. Um, whether it could achieve that is another question. You know, maybe um, just instituting the universal basic income will cause inflation in all sorts of sectors of the economy so that the more you give people, the more you have to give people. But certainly it's aimed at alleviating the worst of poverty while n not removing the incentive to work the way that many welfare programs do, mm -hmm. which is that... Um, if you earn above a certain num amount and you're on a welfare program, you can lose all your benefits all of a sudden just like that or a great number of them. You can be thrown off the welfare cliff, poverty trap, as we call it in the UK. People are trapped in poverty and can't work more. The idea of the universal basic income is anything you earned over and above the basic income, you'd get to pocket. And that is meant to do away with the worst disincentives of the universal basic income, uh, sorry, of the existing welfare state. Now, even though I personally am not in favour of a universal basic income, I try to be fair to the arguments in favour of the universal basic income in the book and collect as many of them as I could as possible. And there's a lengthy Q&A session at the end where I deal with some debates or debating points, defences of some of the, um, or rebuttals of some of the points I made, and I try and be comprehensive to give you a full understanding of the issues from both sides. Yeah, and that's what I think is, is good about this, because it's easy to, when you have a particular political ideology, it's good to just write something off. Well, that's stupid, uh, without, you know, being fair to the arguments that are being presented. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear something like this well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, yeah, great, sign me up. You know, who, who doesn't want uh, right. want free money, so to speak? Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, I think uh, I was looking at Andrew Yang's uh, uh, website for his presidential uh, race, and I think he's proposing $1,000 a month, which mm -hmm. would come to $12,000 a, a year here in the United States. And, and uh, you know, I, I could certainly use that. But the first thing that comes to my mind— I could, too. Yeah, couldn't we all, right? But the first thing that comes to my mind— and, and I, you know, I don't know a lot about, uh, say, uh, in the UK, what their fiscal uh, balance sheet looks like. But here in the United States, I mean, the, the country's functionally broke. Uh, you know, we've got a, a – I, I did an article not too long ago that basically the uh, Treasury Department has determined that the net worth of the United States is like negative $27 trillion. So – the first thing that comes to mind. You mean they'll give me twenty-seven dollar, twenty-seven trillion dollars to take it off their hands? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <That'd> be awesome. <laughs> I don't know what are you going to do with it, though. That's the question. But uh, the the first question with the UBI that that has to come to mind is how how do you pay for it? So okay. what do the advocates say? Uh, you know, it's easy for me to say, well, that's just impossible. But obviously, they have some idea. Well, they want to institute a sales tax. One of the problems with that is it comes as a, a, an opportunity cost. They assume it's going to raise a certain amount of money. Mm -hmm. But 
it's also going to make the goods and services more expensive. So everyone who's buying those goods and services is buying them at an extra cost to pay for their own universal basic income. Seems a little bit silly. You could just uh, knock something off the, slash something off the universal basic income. Uh, people will buy less goods if they're more expensive. Right. So that's one of the proposals. You know, people are always saying, just tax the millionaires, just tax the super rich, just tax the billionaires. If you taxed all of the billionaires in the world, all of their money, it would only really pay for this for maybe two and a half years. So it's going to be regular people who are going to have to be taxed to pay for it. One of my concerns is if you're going to be taxing lawyers and doctors, high earners, 60, 70, 80% to pay for the UBI, people aren't going to want to go to long-term education and get highly qualified in these things. Of course, another thing is people always say, tax those greedy corporations, lay, lay off people working. I think that's also fallacious because uh, corporations, they, they have to account for their taxes as an expense, just as any other expense. It encourages corporations to buy things that they wouldn't otherwise buy because right. it's tax deductible. You know, if I, if, if I can avoid a high corporation tax by buying an extra iPad, um, yeah, maybe I'm spending... Uh, 300 pounds on on balance on the ipad but it's worth 900 pounds i'm saving that much in in taxes or dollars put it in more uh, I, i'm more likely to buy it if i'm going to have to pay 600 dollars in taxes if i don't buy it which is why in these corporations you see these big lavish fountains and right. uh, gold, gold banisters and things like that because everything's tax deductible it's going to make them invest less in employing people and the other thing is, if I've got, you know, I'd be lucky if I had $10 million to invest in a business and I thought I might be able to draw $20 million in profit from that, then I might be more likely to invest that money than if I thought, well, do you know what, even if I do make $20 million in revenue, eh, you know, 40 to 70% of that is going to be taxed. Uh, I might just not bother. I might just not bother taking the risk. So I do think that there's no perfect solution to how to fund this. And it's very easy for people to think that tax money comes out of the thin air mm -hmm. when it's actually in productive parts of the economy. So the answer is they've got a lot of answers. Um, to They've got a lot of proposals of how to tax in order to pay for it. However, they don't seem to be taking into account the opportunity cost of however it's funded. Yeah, I think you hit on a, a fundamental economic truth that incentives matter. And uh, when you start tinkering with incentives, you, I mean, honestly, we don't really know what kind of impact it would have. Uh, obviously, it would require a significant amount of taxation to hand everybody uh, $12,000. I, you know, for me, that's about what I had to fork out last year. So, you know, just let me not have to pay the taxes. I'd be happy with that. But, right. um, uh, you know, the, the incentives that are involved in this are something that I think uh, that have to be looked at. And a lot of people are quick to just say, oh, well, you know, we don't have to worry about that. Another thing that I find a little bit questionable, uh, again, looking at, at Andrew Yang's proposal, uh, you know, he says that, uh, people would have a choice in the United States between uh, maintaining the benefits that they're currently getting. So that might be uh, Social Security or uh, Medicaid, Medicare, or uh, the various welfare programs that are run by the federal government. 
and that sounds good. And his his reasoning is, well, they'll probably take the cash as opposed to staying on these welfare programs. But whenever anybody tells me that a government program is going to go away, I'm really mm-hmm. skeptical of that. So I, I feel like in the long run, I'm going to end up with not only UBI, also a, a VAT or a, a sales tax, a national sales tax. And then on top of that, I'm still going to be paying for all of these other programs. What, what do you kind of make of that? Yes, I think it's very tempting for people to say, well, look, this is going to be great. We're going to get rid of the complex array of different benefits and everything will be under one umbrella. Andrew Yang's proposal is faulted in that he says he's going to give people a choice because it doesn't allow one of the greatest virtues, supposed virtues of the UBI system, which is to completely simplify the system and get rid of the administrative charges find those public sector workers who are bureaucrats, new jobs in the private sector. Um, so his proposal of UBI is one of the is worse rather than one of the better ones, yeah. I would say, because it doesn't even open the scope of simplifying the system since there still be many different forms. But even supposing we did get the UBI that is the most simple. It's just $1,000 into your bank account every month. I think it's only a matter of time before some people start saying, well, you know, I'm a single mother. I should have a higher UBI. I'm a disabled person. I should have a higher UBI. The cost of living in my city is much higher than other places in the US. I should have a higher UBI. And to some people, that's that will sound super, superficially plausible. Why shouldn't the single mother get a higher UBI? Mm-hmm as far as many people are concerned. Now, the problem with that is you're back to a large bureaucracy to sort out who's entitled to what and towering administration costs. Speaking of towering administration costs, I would like some help with them. Scottish Liberty Podcast has Patreon. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Scottish Liberty Podcast and pledge some money to help upgrade the podcast. You might have noticed that the sound quality is better on some of the recent podcasts. That's because I went into my pocket and bought some lapel mics. So please go into your pocket and support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Scottish Liberty Podcast. So what do you make of the argument? And I find this at least plausible, if not mildly compelling, uh, that we're seeing an increasing amount of uh, automation and robotics and that we're going to see a large displacement of workers over the next several decades and that UBI is really going to be necessary because there's just not going to be enough work for everybody to do uh, and we're going to have to reckon with that in some way so it's kind of the technology aspect of it that we're that we're almost approaching this idea of uh of uh you know no more no more work to do which i don't know it seems kind of weird it seems like we always find mm. something to do but but what do you make of that, that some people argument? believe it thank you there's a whole section in my book dedicated to that and i do recommend the book just for that section alone because i was trying to be very thorough Now, you can't prove a negative, so I can't prove that this wave of automation isn't going to be different, but people have been saying that for 250 years. Even if we accept that it is different this time, it's through automation that the price of goods and services have come down so much over the last 200 years. When a flat screen TV came out, it cost a 1,000 bucks. Now you can get one for $87. 
this laptop would be unaffordable. The, the computer that they landed on the moon with was less powerful than a Nokia phone. Mm -hmm. So as automation is implemented, the price of goods and services come down, which means that people need to work for less time to be able to afford their lifestyle. So I think what we would see is if there is an acceleration of automation, the price of goods and services goes through the floor and we're down to a four day week and then maybe a three day week. I think we're quite a long time from utopia yet because we're told constantly classroom sizes are too large, that the hospital waiting lists are too long, that granny needs to sit alone in her house and there's no one to look after her because they can't afford care. So I think that as we go forward, we'll see people more engaged in the kind of work that needs a personal touch and people being there for one another. Whereas all the factory jobs will be automated and goods and services will be so cheap as to not represent a big, a big slice of what people need to fork out for. And people will do things for each other. They'll, they'll, they'll trade for that for money. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, sure, if we get an AI that can look after granny instead, I think she'd probably prefer a real human being. Yeah, but so. let's, supposing, let's supposing we went there, let's supposing even jobs with a personal touch get automated to AI. That might take another 100 or 200, 300 years. If it does happen, then there'll be no poverty because everyone will be rich because all the machines will be doing literally everything. You can't sell something that's an abundant resource. Right. Uh, we see you can go to charity shops. Uh, they can't give away all the clothes that they have. People just donate clothes because they've got too many of them and they can't even give them away. So it used to be at one time, buying a garment was a once-in-a-lifetime event. Well, it used to be that at one time, buying a laptop like this, you know, buying a com personal computer might be something that only very rich people did. At some point, this, in 10 years, this laptop, you'd happily give it away. When I was in right. India, when I was in India, I went into a internet cafe and they were using computers that had Windows XP on them. Mm -hmm. So someone probably just gave them away because, the, cause, but, but it's great for India. So I think we shouldn't fear automation too much. There, yes, it does mean a transition, but it's not really an argument for a universal basic income. At best, you could argue, well, maybe we should go give those truckers a basic income for a year or two while they retrain or while they find a, another job. I'm not for it, but if that's the line you're going to go down, then that, that would be a more reasonable argument than making a universal basic income. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think as you were talking, I was thinking about just the the shift. If you took you and I and dumped us back in, in say, 1800, uh, where virtually everybody worked on a farm and the vast majority of labor was being put into agriculture and producing food. And you told people there, well, pretty soon you're only going to have like 2% of the workforce is going to be working on the farm. They would look at you like you were absolutely insane because they couldn't conceptualize all of the things that we have today and the various types of work and, and the various products and all of the things that, that we have today. And it goes to a basic economic principle that, you know, that we have unlimited wants. And until we have those unlimited wants met, we're going to have things to do. 
And I think, I, I don't know about you, but I'm a long way from having all of my yeah, wants yeah. and needs met. I mean, I don't, yeah. you know, I could already, I, I guess I really can't say that. that That's I'm one of the things. It. Everyone would like to have a gardener. Not everyone can afford one if you've got a garden, a butler, you know, someone yeah. to cook your meals for you, someone to pick up your shopping, et cetera, et cetera. There's still tons and tons of work to be done. It just lacks imagination. And people say, well, how, how are people going to afford that? Well, the thing is, as automation, as I said, pushes the price of goods and services down, you've got more money left in your pocket to pay someone to do it. If people are interested in tracking this in more detail, I did two fairly recent podcasts um, with Andrew Yang in the title, Scottish Liberty Podcast, where I tried to do a really deep dive in this stuff and answer my critics. So what's the appeal to libertarians? Because, you know, to me, just intuitively as, as a libertarian, uh, I kind of recoil at anything that the government's going to do because, sure. <laughs> because it frightens me. They're usually the government messes things up, and, and most of the things that the government is involved in in my personal life uh, are a train wreck. So I would prefer not. But there seems to be uh, at least some uh, level of um, – interest in this type of thing. Can you kind of lay out what that argument is and, and why maybe they're a little bit misguided? Well, I debated uh, Michael Munger at the Cato Institute on this issue in Lions of Liberty podcast. He is a libertarian and he's in favor of the UBI. And one of the ideas is, as we said, it would get rid of welfare cliffs potentially. So there's the hope that more people will be incentivized to work. And then there's the idea of cutting down bureaucrat on bureaucracy, but also there's the hope there that if you get if you give people a UBI, then you can free the market in other ways. You can get rid of the minimum wage and certain labour laws because people will not need a minimum wage to to work because they've already got their um, basic needs supplied, and the lab they'll have more bargaining power because they have to use the technical term, FU money. So if the boss right. treats them badly, they can just leave the job, which will uh, encourage workplaces to have better conditions anyway without without all these labor laws to ensure them. And um, that, that may be certain things like uh, healthcare. People will be able to afford their own healthcare, so it won't need to be so heavily subsidized by the government. Um, and on and on and on. All sorts of things apparently can be cut if we institute a UBI. Mm -hmm. My problem with that is that most people who are for the UBI aren't really interested in cutting those things. They want the UBI in addition to those things because, broadly speaking, they're on the left. The um, so there, I mean, there is a there is a certain logic to the argument from the libertarian or conservative side. I'm just not 100% sure that it stands up to scrutiny. I mean, definitely a UBI is preferable to other more um, authoritarian forms of government like central planning and things. And some people think this is a hedge. This is a defense against the ongoing onset of socialism, the government planning the economy, because at least under this system, the market economy is preserved. You're putting money in people's hands so they can go out and spend it. Certainly that's better than central planning because at least the, the, the market is at work. Uh, I would agree with that, but I don't think it's enough to warrant the risk of 
instituting a universal basic income. Yeah, I, like I said, I'm always skeptical of uh, any type of government program because they never get smaller. I can't remember who said it. I think it was a, a relatively contemporary president that there's never there or might, might have been a Friedman, but uh, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. And uh, in, in my it. view, so, I'm sorry. I said that, sir, and yes, yeah. it was uh, Milton Friedman. Yeah, and so, you know, to me, I see it as a foot in the door more than uh, anything. You know, it's it's a way to kind of to to push that door open, and uh, you know, the, the economics of it, I, I find a little bit iffy too, because a lot of it's based on this Keynesian idea that if we just hand people money, they'll spend that money, and then magically the economy will grow, and it completely ignores the need for uh, savings and, and capital accumulation and, and all of those things that are necessary. People forget that money is not stuff. You know, right. you can have infinite amount of money that doesn't change yeah. the amount of stuff. And yeah. uh, the, the amount of yeah. stuff is the ultimate problem that we have to face. Uh, is... So so why don't you parse that out for your listeners, the idea that um, what that savings create growth, not spending? Because maybe people would like to know the details of that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the basic idea that in, in order to produce things, uh, you have to have uh, you have to have factories. You have to have natural resources. You have to have. Um, buildings. You have to have machines. You, you know, we talk about the uh, the advent of automation and AI. All of that stuff has to be produced, and that costs money. It, it involves capital. When we save money, then that money gets invested into those type of long-term projects. And uh, when you don't have that type of investment, then those those types of uh, underlying uh, building blocks for the economy uh, don't come into existence. So what happens, and this is why we have these boom-bust cycles that we see. Uh, we have central banks like the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, uh, the Bank of Japan. They pump money into the system with this idea we're going to stimulate the economy with spending, uh, and, and they lower interest rates, it disincentivizes savings, and then you end up with malinvestment. So basically people start projects without having the underlying capital to complete them, and you end up with asset bubbles that burst, and we have the boom-bust cycle in the economy. And, and when you start handing people money with the idea that it's going to grow the economy, you're basically doing the same thing. You're ignoring the uh, the underlying building blocks that nobody really wants to, to pay attention to because it's not exciting. It's not sexy to, you know, it's it's cool to think about, I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff. It's not cool to think about, oh, I'm going to buy a machine so I can make the stuff that I'm going to buy right. five years down the road. Right. And people will say, well, people are going to take that money and take it to your store and spend it there. And that's how you'll get the money to buy the machines. But I've got a little illustration to show how that's a fallacy. Now, supposing I own a chain of stores, I would be so lucky. And I get taxed $20 million to pay for this UBI. But it's okay. All of the $20 million goes to my customers mm -hmm. who then come into my shop and spend $20 million. All that means is that I'm in the same position, except for I've got $20 million less stuff in my store, which I then need to replace. I need to spend money on replacing. Now, because I have to spend money replacing all that stuff I lost, I don't have that extra money there to take on new staff or to build more stores 
or to invest in machines that will bring the price of my products down. So I don't, so it's not true that by giving, by taxing the rich, the store owners, to give to the people at the bottom, that there's uh, some gain in right. jobs. In fact, I don't have the money there to put people into employment. However, if I keep that money, I might say, well, you know that store across the road, they're, they're a competing chain. They have much shorter lines than me. So I'm going to invest in more staff so I can compete with them and get the line down so I can compete. Or, you know, God forbid, automatic tellers, okay? I'm gonna put some of those in because then I cut my lines down. Uh, whatever it is that my customers need. Now, now that I've got those, I can bring the price of my products down, which means that everyday people have to spend less in the stores to make ends meet. And in my book, Universal Basic Income For and Against, I illustrate five ways that by getting the government out of the economy, we can really help people at the bottom of the economic ladder in ways such as uh, I described, because there's there, um, uh, from lowering the cost of living by lowering prices of goods and services to lowering the price of housing uh, and what have you. So I think one of the appeals of the book is it's a great introduction if you want to buy a book to give to a left winger, because it really has an emphasis on helping the poor, which I think everyone wants to, uh, most people who are politically engaged are especially concerned about those groups that they deem to be disenfranchised. Right. Well, that's fantastic. Um, really good overview. I appreciate your your knowledge of this. Um, where can folks get the book? Because that would be the next step. If you're interested in what we're talking about and you want to learn more, um, where can you find the book? Yeah, you can go on Amazon. You can get it in Kindle. I believe the paperback copy is available as well. I made a couple of edits to the transcript at one point, so it came down for uh, for a while and it's been back up. If it's not up, when you look, try again in a couple of days or send me a message and I'll figure something out. All righty, I've got one more question and then I'm gonna let you tell folks a little bit more about your about your other work and where they can find uh, all things Antony on the uh, inter internet. But this is this is a question I ask all of my guests. Uh, it's kind of a fun one, but but very important that you answer this properly. So when you're typing, right, like writing a paper or writing something, do you double space after every sentence? Now that really depends on the setting that word is set to. I got very confused and annoyed how sometimes it would automatically take a space or double space. And sometimes I copy things from one document to the other right. and part of it. And it, it really does drive me crazy, although I've now noticed that Word gives you three paste options and sometimes you can remove the formatting from the text. Right. But I wish that they made it easier for us to homogenize text. In fact, they should have a homogenized text option in Microsoft Word. So anyone techie, if you're listening, get on it. <laughs> get busy. Well, the, the proper answer to that question is you should never double space after a sentence. If you're if you're on on a, a computer, um, it drives me crazy as an editor because I'll get these things and I have to fix them for web formatting. And it's, a lot of people well, don't realize that that if you if you're younger or older, 
like my age and older, and you took typing in school, they taught you to double space after every right. sentence. And that's because of the way the fonts were lined up on the typewriter. Yes. Um, but we're not on typewriters anymore. So. Right. Well, thanks for enlightening me. Let me just ask you a question. What if you have one body of text on one topic, and then you go on to a different topic, and you want a break, so you, you double space just there? Yeah, I double space. Lenny. I'll double space the paragraph there. But not right, after okay, a sentence. Okay. Yeah. Not after. Yeah. Not okay. Gotcha. Do you mean do you mean hitting spacebar twice after a sentence? Yes. I would never do that. Thank you. What kind of what <laughs> kind of philistine like why would I do that? You'd have to be know. a bad person to do that, Mike Mahari. Well, I'll tell you what you can do. Next time there is a find and replace option. So you I know, open up. I use it yeah. all the time, absolutely. Okay. It still it Two still space. bothers me because then a lot yeah. of times I'll have it in like I do a lot of work on WordPress, so then I'll have to put it in a Word document and go back and fit. You know, it's a, it's a big hassle, but I agree with you. It's a, it's a philistine move to double space after he sends. So, uh, just real quick, tell folks about about your other work that you're doing. Uh, kind of this the self uh, looking into oneself, and and then uh, tell us where we can find you. All of your websites, social media, any place that you want people to go to. Yeah, I've studied counselling at Edinburgh University and uh, being a, ther- a worked as a therapist since. Um, I kind of delved into a little bit of coaching as well, but I've, um, I'm kind of always interested in sharing content on problems that I've solved or um, in the process of solving. For a long time on Be Yourself and Love It podcast, I interviewed guests this year I've just been doing little podcasts 10 to 15 minutes long uh, so I'd definitely be interested to hear what you guys at home think of those and um, I always try and get really practical I don't like self-help that's like 90% philosophizing and like right. 10, 10% practical application so I'm always looking to find things that you can actually implement in day-to-day life to improve your communication skills relationships whatever it happens to be the topic of the show and yeah i guess that's quite been interesting to me because it means that people can come along with me uh, as i'm trying to work and optimize myself so be yourself and love the podcast you can find it on itunes or uh, soundcloud uh, let me know what you think if you do and uh, it just might make a break from libertarian podcasts or whatever you usually listen to which are of course great but variety is the spice of life absolutely well, I'll definitely link to uh, to all of that in the show notes page for this video. And um, anything else you want to uh, point people towards? Yeah, of course, you can find Scottish Liberty Podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes as well. I'm better known for that than Be Yourself and Love It Podcast and for a few appearances on shows like Tom Woods, right. uh, Raider, Lions of Liberty and what have you. But um, it's a good show. I think uh, I'm trying to do more heterodox topics and like deep dives and looking for things that come up time and time again that aren't always covered in the depths that I'd like to so definitely if you've got time in your podcatcher for another libertarian podcast I definitely suggest checking out a couple of episodes and seeing if you dig it yeah I think what's cool about it as an American is it's Mm. a little bit different perspective because uh Dirty little secret Americans can be kind of myopic, mm. <laughs> and, and it's cool to hear about um, what's going on in the liberty movement outside of the United States, and and to to kind of get a little bit broader perspective. Uh, I think that's a cool 
aspect of your show and, and you do a great job presenting the various episodes and, and of course the philosophy is the same no matter where you are in the world and i think that's uh, i think that's a key insight that people people need to grasp liberty is liberty no matter what your culture or your background or your religion or or whatever it is yeah and i try and bring in you know the stuff that i do know about psychology and all sorts of and philosophy uh, that because um, my background, my undergrad degree was in music and philosophy, and then I obviously studied counselling. So I, I draw influences from a wide variety of places that not everyone in the liberty movement had. So I'm always trying to find ways to put a unique spin on things. Well, very cool. I really do appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your day to talk to me. And uh, it's certainly been a fun discussion and uh, I hope you have a great afternoon. Or I guess you're almost you're approaching yeah, evening I, now, I'm, aren't you? I, I'm. It's evening time here. I appreciate you so much for asking me to come on your show and giving me the opportunity. Thanks a lot, Michael, and keep up the good work. All right. Thanks again. You've been watching It's Your Dime, an interview series presented by Shift Gold. For more information on investing in gold and silver, talk to a Shift Gold Precious Metal Specialist today at 1-888-GOLD-160. That's 1-888-465-3160. Or visit us on the web at shiftgold.com. You can keep up with all of the latest precious metals news at shiftgold.com news. And tune in each week to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap Podcast. This is your host, Mike Meharry. I appreciate you watching, and I'll talk to you again next time.